Levi Stahl is the publicity manager for the University of Chicago Press in Chicago, where we are today. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. It's good to be here. One of the mandates that I've set for the radio program podcast is to examine the various roles that different people fill as pertains to the book. And so I wonder if you could take us through, first of all, the day-to-day activities of a publicist for a publishing house. Sure. The university press world is obviously a little different than the trade world, but, like, for example, the way what I do is, depending on the day and what I've got going on, I'm working at any time on 8 to 12 books in a current season. I'm doing work kind of lingering work from 8 to 12 books from a previous season, and I'm starting to look ahead to 8 to 12 for, you know, six months out for the next season. I'm surprised at that small number. When you combine it with, I also have some management duties, because I've got half a dozen staff members reporting to me, and then I work on our seasonal catalog, so that kind of fills out my day. Some of the people reporting to me who are working on lower-profile books they may be working on as many as 30 a season. We publish about 200 books a year, and then we have a distribution and marketing program for smaller presses, everyone from Reaction to Books in the UK to the British Library, the Bodleian Library, where we handle their North American or U.S. marketing and distribution. So I've got staff members who are working on their books as well, and that totals another 200 or so a year. It's a pretty substantial number for the kind of size publicity staff we have. Is there a a typical range of number of books that one of the big houses would publish a year? You know, off the top of my head, I don't actually know. Among university presses, we are towards the largest. We've long been the largest in in North America. Oxford and Cambridge, of course, dwarf us worldwide because they publish billions of books every year. But we've been right around this sort of title count for, I've been there almost 10 years, and this is around where we've been the whole time seems to work well with the kind of the size staff and the and the financial goals we have as well so first of all you assign different staff members to take care of the various accounts that you've got right we tend to divide our publicists up by discipline more or less each of our in-house acquiring editors works in various disciplines and each of our publicists more or less works with a couple of those editors with the lists they bring in so Everybody's able to develop at least a little bit of specialized knowledge in a field so they can talk, at least fake it, talking intelligently with their authors or with people at conferences or their review editors on particular subjects. But then I kind of skim off the, the dozen or so highest profile books each season, and then my boss actually takes the top like two or three beyond that. And your and, boss would be, what's his uh, Mark Heineke, he's the promotions director. Director, um, okay. And he manages m- me and my people, and then some of the people who are working in, like, direct mail exhibits, other departments that are also doing marketing. And so what I end up getting to do is work in uh, every field, basically, because I'm getting a trade book from this editor, from this editor, from this one, in, in all sorts of different fields, and... And these are books that uh, that they've the press has identified as particularly important, either from a content perspective or from what other perspective would you, you? For this decision, it really it really does mostly come down to is this a book that is of general interest? All of our books are are vetted by the university board. All of them are are considered to make some contribution to scholarship. They they have to reach a, hit a certain bar of 
of value and quality before they're even going to make it. Uh, but then there's that extra question of, is this a book that is going to m merely further scholarship, or is it something that can break out and be sold to your, an intelligent general reader? Once the marketing department and editorial together can make that decision, um, then those are the books I end up working on because they're the ones that require a little bit more kind of creativity in the copywriting so that you can you know, draw out their strengths for a general reader. They require a, sometimes a lot, a little more management of authors as far as like getting them out to, to do, arranging to have them do events or interviews, and a little bit more experience in dealing with review media and with like radio producers and people like that because these are books that if we're going to make a success of them, if we're going to sell X number of copies, the way we're going to do it is by getting word out in the general interest media. So that ends up being kind of the difference between what I do and what the people who report to me and are working on more books do. Their books tend to have kind of a more direct path. There's an anthropology book, so you want to make sure it comes to the attention of these editors at anthropology journals and it goes to anthropology conferences and, and that sort of thing. For the trade books that are going out to the general world, every time the approach is a little different. Mm -hmm. Depending on Depending the topic, on the, the topic yeah. and who you think out there is going to be interested in, in reviewing it and who you think your ultimate audience is among readers. You mentioned it required a bit more copywriting skill. Maybe we could take an example of a book that's important to the press that you've worked on recently. My, my favorite example of that right now is one that's not quite out yet. It's out, be out in the spring. It's a book by Kathy Gere, who is, works in, in classics and archaeology. It, it's called Knossos and the Prophets of Modernism. It's about Sir Arthur Evans's excavation at Knossos on Crete, excavation of the Palace of Knossos in 1900, I think. The, what he found there, and more importantly, what he imagined he found there as he reconstructed what he imagined this Minoan palace to be and began building it out of ruins that were there, but also out of concrete and new and made new buildings. How that and the way it was reported and rippled through cultural and intellectual life in Europe really fired modernism. It got people like Robert Graves and H.D. and even Freud excited about this concept that Evans was drawing of this pacifist matriarchy on Crete that was made up almost all out of whole cloth, but in part because of the the losses of the Great War by the late teens when when he was really coming up with all these discoveries, these thinkers and writers and artists were all they were in search of something to kind of help make sense of what was left to them after the war, and this vision of a lost almost paradise that he was drawing was very attractive, and it, it kind of helped jumpstart some of their thinking and some of their work. And this is a complicated book and a not obvious, there's no obvious real like through line through what she's talking about. She's got, she's mixing in history and archaeology and cultural history mm -hmm. and literary criticism. And what is fun as a copywriter in that case is the task you've been set is to read and read it. You've, you've got time pressures, you've, you've got space pressures, but you need to become familiar enough with the book that you can assemble from this kind of disparate approach and, of, and a fascinating manuscript, 1,400 characters that will give a reader just enough knowledge of what the book that they're holding is that they will start to get an idea of what, the, what they'll find when they open it, but they'll also 
be intrigued enough that they're going to want to open it. So it's coming up with a hook that uh, is going to uh, not necessarily... You're, you're interested in grabbing a large audience with m- multiple hooks, I would assume. Yeah, you, you want to be clear and concise, but you also don't, you don't want to answer all their questions. You need something to grab their attention, and you need to have a sense of who your, your various audiences are. Like, like I, I know, just as a, simply as a reader, that mentioning Robert Graves' name is something that you can never go wrong by doing. <laughs> you know, you're, so you'll, you make sure you figure out who your characters are, who, who will cause people to, to perk up. Yeah. And you make sure that you explain how they're involved. Um, well, that co- that covers off the literary side, let's say, and then you you talk about the the birth of modernism. Now you've got the, the sort of the arts, right? And you community, and you so you try to weave all of those things while at the same time um, pulling one thread through your copy so that the reader reading the copy never feels like they're at sea. They they feel like they get to the end of this what is essentially a very very brief essay mm-hmm. on the topic, feeling like they know what's, what's coming next. They know, they know what they're going to get in this book. So in other words, you've got a variety of potential hooks. What you want to do is pick one that's going to be uh, read differently by uh, as many yes. different uh, audiences as you can uh, and intrigue them. I, one reason I really like copywriting is, to be honest, for the same reason I like doing taxes, because there's, <laughs> there's, a, there's a form to it. There's a, a sense in which while you still are free, you still have to write well, and you have to do yeah. it right. Well, there's an ob- you've there's, got an objective. Right. You, you can tell when you've finally got everything in its place. Well-written copy feels assembled. If, if you're someone who does this for a living, you can, you can see when it's all right. Well, it's persuasive. Yeah. Uh, rhetorical. Yeah. And, and we have, a, I think, an advantage in that most of the trade books we work on, most of the general interest books... These are people who are established scholars, and this is their attempt to get their what they care about passionately out to people who don't either don't know about it at all or know about it on a superficial level. And so they're, in general, very willing to work with us to make what might be somewhat abstruse arguments very clear, because they're they're not generally doing this for money. You don't publish a general interest book with a scholarly press primarily to make money. They've got jobs as faculty. It's prestigious, wherever. though, obviously, and, and they have to publish or perish, too. Yeah. But I think that once you get to this, the, sort of the level of books I get to work on, the difference between that and your basic monograph is that there is an aspect in which this becomes a labor of love. This is a topic that's important to them, and they have found a way, we hope, to make it important to people who, whose jobs don't depend on it, whose, whose careers aren't involved in it. And so they're excited whenever we're able to work together and make it obvious that this is for, if not everyone, then for a wide audience. That, it's satisfying. I would assume that you, in each different field, you have a rough idea of what that particular kind of publication should sell. Yeah. Whereas here, the sky's the limit. Yeah, and we obviously make estimates. I mean, our, we've got our sales manager is extremely sharp. From all the data we've accumulated over decades of doing this, we make assumptions and we set print runs and all of that. But you really do, yeah, with a trade book, you could fail, you could succeed beyond anything you expected. The range is so much better, and it, it comes down to, to the quality of the book and to chance, but also to the sort of work we're able to do making making it attractive to a reader. Levi Stahl, I'm speaking with the publicity manager for the University of Chicago Press. We've covered off then your role as a copywriter, 
to make the book enticing and of interest to a broad audience. How do you do that without being, uh, we were talking earlier about these superlatives that are constantly thrown around, referring to books that really aren't that. How do you wade through all of these now meaningless words? It is tough, and there are words, it's funny, every season, whenever we're preparing our seasonal catalog, all of us in the publicity department end up reading the entire catalog a couple of times, just proofreading, checking for errors, and you get to the end and you realize you've read three different of your colleagues, including yourself, talking about how a book opens a new window on, you know, <laughs> You end up using cliches here and there. There's no way around it in copywriting. But if things are going right, and if you've got a good book in front of you, you can avoid it largely through specificity. Referring specifically to the books, right. what the book has to say. Stick close to what the book is actually saying or doing, and you. I find at least that it's much easier to avoid. The better I know a book, the more likely I am to be able to write about it without falling back on cliché. And... I think we have an advantage, too, again, because our expectations relative to, say, uh, Danielle Steele are modest. We have the advantage of being able to simply say, this is this is the book we're offering you. This is the book, and maybe this is the thesis of the book. Right. We're selling you a book that has, has content and ideas. Yeah. It's not the same as every other book that this author has published or every other book on the shelf. We're not trying to make it stand out in the field of, a million romance novels. There's not competition, really, because it's unique. Right. and It's a new theory, let's say, that's being presented. And there are comparable books, and there's certainly, you know, every every book is competitive with every other book, but there's there's less push to to oversell it. You can you can sell it on its merits, because, mm-hmm. again, if, we, if we've done our job right and we've selected the right books, it has merits, and we our job is to make those clear. So moving from copywriting, then... The challenge is to create a buzz around it. Yeah, and again, there we have a, I would say probably disadvantages and advantages being university press. The advantage is that we have a solid reputation. You know, people know who we are and what we do, and they know, again, that in general we don't oversell books. My my boss and I will go later this month to New York, and we'll meet with Review Media there. Is um, that, sorry, is that a sort of a, an annual or a biannual? It's a semi-annual trip each each time we have a new season we we go out and make these calls and strictly speaking i suppose they you know you could view them as unnecessary but as as you know when you it's a different world when you meet someone and talk about a book than when you get a, an email pitch or a catalog in the mail i'll meet with the editor of discover mag or the books editor of discover magazine and i will in 15 minutes or so highlight the best science titles we've got coming out and i'll give her the, uh, the best like, using what criteria the goal is you go in knowing the knowing the magazine you're pitching to, mm-hmm. and you th- you think okay the best th- fits with that right, ma- magazine my, who the really, readers are. If if you're doing your job right, making a publicity call, you will be actually helping them. You'll be pointing out this book. I find this book fascinating, but I don't know if it's right for your readers. But I want to just make sure you see it. Mm-hmm. This other one here, this I think is is dead on. You reviewed you reviewed X and Y book last year that were kind of similar. This one does that, but here's what else it does. And you'll give them a two-minute spiel about it, and that book may be six months down the road. You're trying to implant in their mind so that whenever you do send them that book later, they'll open it up among the hundred they get that day, and they'll say, oh, right, I remember when Levi stopped by and talked about this. I want to make sure to get this out to such-and-such reviewer. It's, a, I find, very, very effective because it just it helps to put a face to the book. Mm-hmm. If, mm-hmm. if you've ever been in the book review editor's office, 
they're crammed to the rafters with books. Anything you can do to make yours stand out and be more memorable helps. You, you have a uh, tabulation of how many reviews each book receives? We don't have anything quite so systematic, although we, we talk about it here and there, and I think relatively soon we'll have something like that implemented. But we do, we keep tabs on them as we go. Everything from Google alerts to just general searches, just to see what's happening with the books we're working on. Partly because it means we can share good news with the author, and, uh, and also to see yeah. what our efforts have paid off. We're doing a good job here. Yeah, to be able to tell our sales department, our sales reps, hey, this book's going to be in the Wall Street Journal, so yeah. if you've had any accounts, you've had trouble getting it in the door, Send them this Tell them this. Tell them people will be asking for it. And it all works together Mm -hmm. when it works. You know, sometimes you have a book that you publish that's very good that just sinks like a stone, just disappears. You'll get one review, two reviews, and it's hard to figure out sometimes why that is. Other books sometimes just keep going and going and going, and you, you you get reviews nine months later, a year later, when it ought, by all rights, ought to be finished. Is there an average number of reviews that a book will get? For most of our general interest books, lately, 8, 10, but the the difficulty is, and it, this gets more difficult every year, as you know, book review space is shrinking. Yeah. It, as in it's, it's shrinking on the print side, but expanding on the online yeah. side. And, and your more creative editors, somebody like David Ulan at the LA Times, they've been cutting his space relentlessly. So far, I don't know how he does it, but so far he has been making up for it at least somewhat online. He's been hiring, he's got genre columnists who who really bring a a good eye and an interesting voice to their columns. He's got more online coverage of books than he had a couple years ago. Where he's finding the money or or the resources, I don't know, but some editors have definitely been able to do that. Others, the section just goes away, or or it becomes a shell of what it was. Yeah, or part of it. That's what happened with the Globe and Mail. Is just this month yeah. they're getting rid of their standalone section and folding it into the focus section. And it's it's tough because yeah, we have to explain to our authors, especially if we have authors who published with us or with someone else in say the early '90s, we have to explain to them that this is a different world. You might your book might have been reviewed in Newsweek in 1995, but the odds of that at this point it might. We have books reviewed in Newsweek, but just the number of sheer, the number, sheer number of, of titles of, that are being put in front of these uh, yeah. editors is yeah. It's tough. So we've had to become more creative too. We've reach out to bloggers. Public radio is still very important for us. I mean that can really move a lot of books and get a lot of people interested. And you fire things off to the, each one of these public radio stations has a local book person? It depends. Um, Mostly we work through national programs, partly because that's easier to to manage and track and and they have the biggest reach. There are also a lot of very good programs, either in small syndication or that are just on one or two good stations, Um, and we try to work with those as well. Or if there's a good station in an author's hometown, especially if it's someplace like New York, obviously, there's there's plenty of stuff. Like if we've got, we have an author in Buffalo right now and uh, we're going to be able to get him on Buffalo TV and Buffalo Radio just because the people producing those programs are looking for content, mm-hmm. and it's not like in New York City where they've got their pick of everybody. And so we've got an interesting author to offer them, and, and it works out really well, and you you know, you know bring the book to the attention of some more people. It requires a little more, like I said, creativity and ingenuity than we publicists would have had to show 10, 15 years ago. But it's also fun because, like, again, when, you, when you're sending out to people like writing online or people who aren't used to being contacted by publicists, 
you can establish a relationship in a way that you can't necessarily with the editor of the New York Times Book Review. Yeah, who they're, is they're just so busy. He's so busy, or with requests and, and demands. Yeah, and irritable. Whereas uh, someone, as you say, who hasn't isn't used to it, may be thrilled to do as much as they possibly can for you. And in the the level of enthusiasm, if you've found the right person and the right subject, you can get someone really writing in depth and writing writing intelligently about it. Who ha- if they're if it's the right person, they've got a readership who follows and trusts them. They also have a relationship with that readership, which makes their word a little more convincing than again reading a reviewer in the paper who you don't you don't know and you don't know their background. Well, know. the neat thing too is that because of the you know the links, the fact that it's permanent, you can fire that link quite easily to yeah. a huge number of people that you know even five years ago you couldn't necessarily get that kind of what that springboard or that yeah. additional you know here it is. And but actually, that, that's another thing in which the internet has helped as far as, again, going back to radio, almost all the programs our authors are on now right. are available online. So yeah. we can, if I want to pitch an author who's been on one program to another program, I can send off a link and say, look, they did really well on this one. You might just see, listen and see what you think. Give me a call. Mm-hmm. And it, it's very, very helpful. And it's helpful, too, again, just in terms of generally accumulating a mass of information about a book online, of whether it's interviews, blog posts, reviews. It makes it easier for somebody who hears about the book anywhere to be able to, to look into it and make a, a decision about whether they want it. It is great, isn't it, that Google Alert uh, service where yeah. anyone that's interested in a book, for example, just put punches in the title and, and the name and you know interview or review, and bang, there's yeah, everything. You, you, can get, you can get so much information now that even even just a couple years ago wasn't available. I know as a as someone a, a compulsive book buyer, I make use of that in a way again that still astonishes me. I can make much more informed decisions about new books or new authors than I could have. I'm speaking with Levi Stahl, who is the publicity manager for the University of Chicago Press. How many uh, media outlets then would you typically contact for a particular book, and how many bloggers might you contact? It really depends. And I, what I view as an advantage of working where I do, we, we really are able to kind of treat each book as an individual entity. We don't we don't have a lot of like, there's a certain aspect in which every book is the same, but we're able to really tailor to each each book, but. You know, your average general interest book from us, we would end up sending out 150-ish copies of the, the bound page proofs months in advance of the actual book, and those would go to actual newspapers and magazines, places that have long lead times, mm-hmm. because they need to know that they're, they need to save space for a review in April or May, and they need to know four months in advance. Then we would follow those up with finished copies of the book when the book arrives, um, and again, a similar amount, but actually probably a few more, because then we also add places with short lead times like radio and people like bloggers who you can get a book on Friday and write about it that night if you, if you, <laughs> you like it enough. With it, yeah. And so of that, it would probably be, depending on the book, like I, I'm working on this Shirley Hazard book, that's a little more literary than most of our stuff. Most of what I work on is is straight-up nonfiction, history, politics, whatever. This was literary essays, travel essays about Naples. And, like, I knew Shirley Hazard fans online. Like, I knew to contact Brian Appleyard. I, I knew you had written about Hazard. And I wanted to make sure to get word out directly to all those people because I knew that if I could put the book in their hands, 
they would at the very least I had a guaranteed person there who would open it. You know, whereas <laughs> again, you send it to a newspaper book review section and it, it might just sit there. So for that book, I probably sent eight, ten, maybe even a dozen copies to bloggers, which doesn't sound like that many, but when you think that just a few years ago that would have been zero, I, I view that as, as a success, as a, a real, real growth. And, and it worked. I mean, I've had people write about it and write well without space constraints. And it's, it's been very satisfying. What other changes have taken place in the last, say, five years with your position? It's a little odd. I've, I've actually only been doing this job. I've been in the press almost 10 years, and I've only been doing this job for not quite three, but before that I was doing advertising. And so I've, I've worked in the, in the marketing department the whole time. And the other real changes have simply been, again, it comes down to, to communication and, and communication technologies. Technology, yeah. My contact with my authors is almost all via email these days. I'm, I'm not by, by nature a telephone person. I also like, I just like having a record of what we discussed and it makes everything easier that I can later go back and search it and that they have it in front of them as well. So I, I have email conversations with all my authors during the day. Well, now those conversations would involve availability for, for readings, for example? Yeah, like we, the things I would end up in contact with authors about is everything from, hey, look, great news, you got a review in, in this place, here's the link, to, I've got an inquiry from this station. Or would you be available anytime next week for an interview of 20 minutes on the phone? Or this past fall, we did a book by a couple of comedians, Tim Reed and Tom Dreesen, who were Chicagoans who were the first black and white comedy team. Mm. And this was a book about their days doing this in the late 60s and early 70s in Chicago and throughout the Midwest and the South. And what they experienced and then about they went on to they, they split up they went on to do different things separately but for that I actually served as kind of as tour manager in a sense mm-hmm. they came to Chicago and did a week of events they went to New York and did a week of events they went to Boston they went to LA they also had an outside publicist for this because they had worked in Hollywood and had kind of a, a lot of ideas there and so she and I worked together and it was every day okay the schedule for for tomorrow this this and this here are the phone numbers you need to know here's where you need to be call me if you have a problem and these are media and, outlets primarily yeah, yeah. Um, talk shows radio shows print reporters that sort of thing that's a big part of your job is liaising with media representatives yeah and this was kind of an extreme case of it because again this was a book that if it was going to sell it was going to sell on the strength of these two guys mm-hmm. going out and talking to people. Their personalities. Because they're, they're funny and personable when you, when you get them out the door. For, and I think that's probably, if I were, having never worked at a trade house, I don't know, but if I were working at a general trade house in New York, I think this would be much more of a part of my job, just setting up author tours for name authors. So my version of that generally is a little lower key, but it is like public radio program X or Y is interested in, in talking to you for a program on your subject. So if you send me a note back and tell me when you're available and we'll, we'll see if we can make it work. And, and then you just make sure everybody has what they need to, to do this interview, contact information, they have copies of the book, they know who they're talking to, and then you stand back and let it happen. So there is a certain amount of just straight-up housekeeping. Uh, again, it's, it's relatively satisfying because you're, you're helping to get word out about this book that, that you, you believe in. I'm speaking with uh, Levi Stahl, who is the publicity manager of the University of Chicago Press. Do you measure, quantify the success? Book sales is pretty obvious. Yeah, in, the goal is to sell books. And so if, if a book succeeds in sales, you feel good. No, no, you know, kind of no matter what. You, mm-hmm. you, you feel you've done your job and it's worked. But 
one of the things that my old boss always used to say was, sure, she may have stolen this from someone, but that reviews are a, a necessary but not sufficient condition for book sales. You, know, you have to have them if you want to sell books. They may still not be enough. So there are times when you can you can get reviews everywhere and feel that, yeah, my part of the job was a success. Something happened. It, it's, it still didn't work. Especially you get in a, an economic situation like this, that can be the case where, yeah, everybody believes that this book sounds great, but nobody's buying anything. So you don't have that final marker of, yes, we succeeded. We sold this huge quantity of books. But you look back and you think, I... I think I did everything I could here. We got the book out there and we got good reviews and you just write it off as tough luck and you move on. But that is the thing. You feel like you've done your part whenever you have succeeded in bringing the book to the attention of a review editor. They've matched it up with the right person and you've come up with a review that you can send to the author and it's obvious that the reviewer got what they were trying to do. Mm -hmm. And that's always a really good feeling you feel like you did your part. The author is grateful and gratified that, that their book has been understood. And it's it's a good day. Just in closing, uh, your experience with negative reviews, do you find that they sell the book just as well as a positive review? I don't know if I would say just as well. And, I mean, there are some that are so negative that you can't even spin it. <laughs> um, and that's, all, that's one of the toughest parts of the job is because you have to share it with the author. They're going to find out about it. So you do. You explain that it really is true that any attention is better than none. Which is true. Which really is true. It would have to be a absolutely brutal savaging for a review in a major publication not to have some useful effect on sales. Because no matter what, bringing the book to people's attention, there will be some people who either know better, they know this reviewer and their their biases, or they read the review and it's kind of like reading the, the one-star reviews on Amazon you read it and you get what that reader reads for that you don't so they'll they'll read through the review in a sense if the re- if the reviewer is intelligent and writes well then you don't have to agree right. with them and uh, you might decide this book is for you regardless and the reach of a major review publication is so great that even if that's a, a smaller percentage of the readers of the review than you would like it's still going to it's going to move some books you're mm-hmm. going to people are going to go pick it up or, or go look it up online and, and see other takes on it. and So it's never fun to send a, a negative review to an author, but you... I mean, you pretty well feel obliged to send everything that you come across to the author. Yeah. With good reviews, it's great because it makes them happy, and it's always good to make people you're working with happy. With bad reviews, you don't want to be in a position where they're hearing about hearing news about their book from somebody else. Even so you if, want to be on top of things right, you want, quickly. You, you want to yeah. get, yeah, because they're typically going to Google their own right. name. And sometimes you just can't, sometimes they do find out about elsewhere, you just can't move fast enough. But you want it to seem like you know what what's going on with their book at all times. And if you're trying to hide a review from them, they're going to find out, and that's just ultimately not going to be good for what you need to be a, a productive relationship. You need them to trust you and be willing to do their part to help you sell their book. And if they don't think you're out there paying attention to it, then they're not going to be likely to go the extra mile and help. You know, They're not going to find time to do that interview or, or they're not going to uh, appreciate something else you're doing for them. So you just send it on and you explain what I said, that it's better than nothing. <laughs> you say it a little more, more cheerily than that. Yeah. But or the guy's a jerk. Yeah, I mean, you can, you can say, if you think they just got the review, the book wrong, as a publicist, you can just say that, you know, yeah. and you can say it honestly. 
and hope the author agrees with you. Final question. I think you've answered it a variety of different ways, but what do you get the most pleasure from in your work? For me, it is the the requirement of my job that I know a little bit about everything. I have a, I have an excuse now. To, so you're paid to to be a generalist because I have to be able to at least fake a knowledge of every a slim knowledge of almost every subject because I I just never know what book might cross my desk and I never know when I'm in a meeting with a with a review editor what question I might get and you can sometimes answer questions with I don't know I'm going to have to look it up but the more you're able to at least come back with an answer that makes clear that you actually know somewhat of what you're talking about the better off your your relationship with that review editor is going to be, the more likely they are to trust what you have to say. So it's just it's a sheer pleasure to have a, a reason to keep up on on everything, and it's so satisfying to be able to actually make use of my tendencies as a dilettante, <laughs> kind of an intellectual butterfly. Well, I, I guess the other thing too is with all of this, you know, these sort of tendrils of information that you know, you're gathering attached to those are the names of the titles of all of your books yeah. because you need to be able to show a certain knowledge but bang, yeah. you're, you're deliver the book too. So it's fun to, with each, with each book I work on, I get to learn a little bit more about something. And the longer I do this, in theory, the better I get at it. Similarly, the longer you do it, the more you get to know the people you're, you're working with at the publications, the more you get, you know, you work with an author a couple of different times. You're constantly building your store of, of both knowledge and contacts. And since this is a good business with good people, that, that's a lot of fun. I said that was a final question. One last okay. uh, request of you, and that is we have an audience of book lovers. What book of yours should they uh, avail themselves of? Ooh, well, I think I have to, given today, I think I have to make a pitch for the Richard Stark novels. Probably my proudest achievement last year was getting the, the ball rolling on having the University of Chicago Press reprint the first three, and now six, and now soon nine, of Richard Stark's novels featuring Parker the Bank Robber, written in the early 60s by Donald Westlake under his pen name Richard Stark. They're glimpses into a, a universe where the only real morality is that you ought to do your job well. And when your job is robbing banks, then <laughs> it gets pretty exciting. The first one, The Hunter, was made into the movie Point Blank back in 67 by John Borman, starring Lee Marvin and Angie Dickinson. And they've been kind of in and out of print over the years, but they are the, some of the best examples of hard-boiled crime writing you'll ever read. And we, I was so glad to be able to convince the university that these these books were of value long term, that they were things that people were going to want to continue reading, and we've been successful with the first batch of them. Um, I'm thinking of this in particular because Donald Westlake died yesterday at age 75, and the email exchanges I've had with people who I've met partly through working on these books in the in the day since we found out, the amount of sadness that that we all feel that someone who was still, still writing, still vital, still completely engaged with his craft is gone and that there won't be any more Parker novels. Um, it really it makes me glad that we were able to do this while he was alive and help, help ensure that his novels would still find an audience and still be in print. And it makes me really want to recommend the, the first one's The Hunter. Pick it up. Don't be surprised if it's um, violent and vicious, um, a, little, a little thuggish, but incredibly well-written and showing real perceptiveness about humanity. 
Well, thanks very much for taking the time with us. And, Thank you. Uh, and uh, providing us with your uh, perceptions. And it's been a pleasure. Excellent. I've been speaking with uh, Levi Stoll, who is the publicity manager for the University of Chicago Press in Chicago.